always find uh, retreats one of these amazing paradoxes. A little bit, you know, like so many other things in our lives, including civilization, in that it's, uh, it's amazingly complicated to organize a retreat like this and for everybody to, for most of you at least, to set aside the time to get into the retreat is complicated, you know. Less than half the people who register can go on the retreat. You know, and then, and then we need these cars and we have to organize carpooling. We need freeways and, you know, we have to get the snow off the car. Some of you drove hundreds of miles. You took, you said nine hours to get here? <laughs> And the people from Indiana, that, did you drive? No. So how long did that take? Yeah. Yeah. So just to, just to appreciate this great paradox and, uh, of our practice and not to be ashamed or uh, embarrassed by the contradiction of how much effort, how many complications there are for us to practice. And even things like uh, needing our specialized equipment, you know, and each of us in our own way. Now, some of us, some of you maybe are more simple, more, you know, live a more renunciate life than others. But, you know, like I need certain things in order to be comfortable. And I have them in my room, you know, and they're for me. And we have all these ways to make us feel safe being here, in order to practice simplicity, you know, in order to practice renunciation. So, the reason I bring this paradox up, I think it, if we bring it up in the right way, it will break our heart wide open in a good way. This is our predicament. And we have to begin where we are. You know, we are complicated, on on one level at least, on this relative level, we're complicated beings. We have a lot of conditioning, a lot of stuff has been set in motion in our lives, and hating it, or thinking that we shouldn't have all the stuff that's been set in motion, all these perceived needs, for example, that doesn't make it different than what it is. These needs or these, you know, feelings we have, they are as real as anything. They need to be respected for what they are, their inclinations. So all of the volunteers, all the you know, people who have made this retreat possible, the sisters and the family that started the center before the Franciscan sisters took it over, part of the charismatic Christian movement, which is sort of an interesting movement in Christianity because it's uh, it has some similarities to Dharma practice in that it it relies a lot on direct experience, as opposed to you know needing the church or needing the pastor or minister or whatever the priest but that people can have direct experiences of the Holy Spirit. That's where this place came out of that tradition. And then later the family who started it then passed it on to the Franciscan sisters who run it today. If you don't know, they have the Rambler just just 
back there, 100 feet, 150 feet or something. Like Michelle said, they're not around tonight. So, um, this whole place, all the work, we're here, and we just appreciate what it took. And so, now we've got as much as we have, you know, we've done as best we could to get here, to take what we need for all of us who organize it, to create a community feeling that is safe for most of us most of the time. It's not perfect. And so this is our opportunity now to see, like uh, I like the way it's, someone said it once, to remember, uh, oh yeah, it goes, the most important thing is to remember what the most important thing is. <laughs> Actually, I think that's really useful. The most important thing, not just on retreat, but just generally in life, the most important thing is remembering what the most important thing is. So all this work, like this willingness to engage the complexity, the messiness of life to get ourselves here, is to support us remembering the most important thing is to remember the most important thing. And then so our practice actually is sustaining this remembering with a, with a beautiful sense of humor and forgiveness so that when we forget the most important thing, it's like the attitude should be, that's amazing. Because it really is amazing how we keep forgetting the most important thing, because it's the most important thing. We wouldn't forget, like, if, you know, the most important thing is that we were being hunted by a saber-toothed tiger, we'd be less likely to forget it. But when our life is, uh, you know, we built up the civilization and a perceived sense of safety, you know, which is really the motivation to a large degree for civilization, eliminating noxious things, then uh, the, the, the shadow of civilization is we forget the most important thing. And things that aren't so important start to seem more important. I mean, we're conditioned actually to be forgetful about what's the most important thing. And I bet... You know, even when I asked that question, you know, the most important thing is remember the most important thing. It occurred to me that, like, oh yeah, what's the most important thing? <laughs> you know, and if I if I were to say to everyone, yeah, and I, I on the back side of the sheet of paper, I want you to write it down, you know, and pass it in, and I'll take a look. Put your name down. And I'll take a look and see what you said was the most important thing. You know, we'd all get tight, like. Did I get the right most important thing? <laughs> what is the most important thing? Whatever <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. So, are we willing to, in a sense, live that question? Not like, like luckily we don't have to get it right, according to somebody else, some authority figure. But it's like, uh, hopefully... Raising it in this way reminds us that, well, yeah, you know, as a, as a living being, 
you know I guess I should have some sense of what I'm going to do with this life what's the most important thing and it's okay for someone to say drift or not worry about the most important thing I mean that's okay like if that's what your most important thing is is to not worry about the most important thing but then to live that like to see like does that work is it taking care of you in a way that you want to be taken care of then you know we can from a place of humility you know by hearing that like the most important thing is remembering what the most important thing is you know then then it may beg the question well what do other people think the most important thing is what do they talk about? Like the, just that sense of humility. What is the most important thing? I don't. I'm not sure. I know what the most important thing is. And from a Buddhist point of view, or from a, you know, the way the Buddha might reflect on this, or suggest that we reflect on this, is around aspiration or around refuge. Like a German monk, Nyanaponika Tera, who's now dead, but. He lived in Sri Lanka for a long time, ordained, and became a, a monk, a scholar, translator, and wonderful teacher. And uh, he, he would say something like, in one of his articles, the first thing we want to ask is, um, are we in need of a refuge? Like I was saying a moment ago, are we in need of the most important thing? Like, is that rele- even relevant to us? Are we as a human being, as a living being, are we vulnerable to something? Or are there holes, what we call dukkha? Like, can we fall into states of stress and suffering? And if the answer is yes, then, then that's sort of saying, well, maybe we are in need of a refuge then. What can help, given that there is this tendency of my mind to fall into states of woe, as it's said sometimes, as it's translated sometimes. States of woe, lamentation, the beating of one's breast, the kind of pulling the hair out, the worry, the anxiety, the chronic work of denial and distraction to avoid, you know, just the different avoidance techniques we use to not feel what we're feeling. So these are the, you know, if you if you recognize this, then, well, there is a need for refuge. So what's the flavor of that refuge? Well, you know, the Buddha might say something like, well, it would be the release, the refuge would be the release of that state of anxiety or that state of heaviness or that state of worry it would be freedom, the mind or the heart, this, not bound up with that. That's what the refuge is, or the aspiration. So then going back, like, the most important thing is remembering the most important thing, then maybe the most important thing is remembering some, however the mind, this mind, this heart conceives it or holds it, or maybe even better, aims, aspires, that it aspires for a release 
of any experience of the heart being bound or the heart-mind being imprisoned or the heart or mind being weighed down or restricted. So any limitation, the Buddha said at the end of the sutta, the, on the, heart, the Heartwood Sutta, the talk he gave that is titled Facsimile uh, of the Heartwood, something like that. He says, he describes this refuge or this, you know, um, aspiration as the unshakable release of the heart. So the heart's release, that's not just a temporary release that we put the weight down and we have a momentary experience of freedom, but a, a release that isn't vulnerable, isn't going to, that release isn't going to change when conditions change. Because there are times when we put down the load, but it's because we're in a really safe place. Things aren't irritating us, so the heart experiences, to some degree at least, release. You know, you might even feel that a little tonight. Like, oh God, so nice to be out of the city, or so nice to be with a wholesome group of folks. You may feel differently tomorrow. <laughs> How many more hours? <laughs> what was I thinking? So this, you know, part of our practice is the maturing of our aspiration. It may begin with a like the the real wholesome, appropriate beginning stages of practice which may last decades, lifetimes, who knows, is just a deepening humility. Like, I don't really know what the most important thing is. And I'm checking it out. I'm listening, seeing what other people have figured out, seeing if it actually comes alive for me, relevant, real for me, as they talk about it. Learning, like, what others have said is the most important thing, that doesn't seem to be the most important thing. I mean, a lot of us have had to do that in terms of our culture and what our parents said was the most important thing. Just imagine, like, how many most important things we've clearly discovered are not the most important things. That's good work. Imagine if we had discovered all that and everything we've been fed about what the most important thing is was still very much alive in our mind, strong attachment, kind of a fixed view that, uh, you know, fitting into the cultural ideal in terms of body type or body, you know, or wealth or color of skin or, you know, whatever it might be. But uh, hopefully, you know, slowly, often painfully, we've been able to realize clearly that that's not the most important thing. That's just a habit, cultural habit, that's just, you know, an imprint we receive, but it can be seen, it can be seen as false, like that's a promise that that doesn't really deliver. So what is the most important thing? 
And then we might hear things, you know, from reading and from friends about just this general path of spiritual practice where they say the most important thing is spiritual attainment or spiritual experience or spiritual awakening or whatever words, union with God, that you might have heard in your different explorations with spiritual organizations, spiritual teachings. And so, generally, you know, spiritual teachings are pointing to things that aren't here and now in the world, like, well, you know, certain body, certain power, pointing to something. And then we can get confused, like, oh, maybe we have to transcend. So one of the things that's nice about how the Buddha taught is that this freedom isn't a transcendent. I mean, it's a funny word, transcendent. I don't want to say you, it's inappropriate to use it because it has some meaning in terms of spiritual practice, but it's not useful if we think transcendent in, in terms of not here and now. Because a lot of times when we use the word transcendent, like uh, in some traditions the word heaven, it has a sense of a different location and a different time frame. But in this practice, the release of the heart, the unshakable release of the heart, this most important thing, like if it's really the most important thing, the most relevant thing, then it would be a release of the heart here and now. Because I don't know about you, but for me, that's what's most relevant. I'm most interested in the release of the heart here and now. Maybe secondarily, I'd be interested in it later. <laughs> but, you know, the problem with that is I'm getting really good at wanting that release later. So then later, I'll want that release later. I'll be imagining that release later, because that's what I've been practicing. <coughs> it really matters what we aspire <coughs> toward. Or, in other words, it really matters, you know what the most important thing is. Because our whole life actually then unfolds according to the most important thing. Of course, mostly we're... There is a most important thing that's, in a sense, governing the mind and the choices and the way our mind is perceiving experience. But it's just not... We're not consciously aware. I mean what we could probably say is the most important thing is uh, reacting to greed, anger, and delusion. Because that's, that's really the truth. We're being the mind and how we perceive things and the kind of choices we make. Most of the time, for most of us, we're being, the activity of our life is being governed by the presence of greed or aversion or distractedness, delusion. And so, the force of greed, anger, and delusion, by default, is the most important thing, like addressing greed. So when I feel, when the, my mind is influenced by greed, craving, then it seems like the most important thing is to do something about it, like think about what I want, or try to get what I want. Imagine how nice it would be when I get what I want. 
So you'll see yourself many times, I'm guessing, this weekend, you know, under the influence of that most important thing, getting what you want as the most important thing, or getting rid of what you don't want, aversion, is the most important thing. And you'll be sitting there putting your mind to work around that being the most important thing. Like, if only I could get rid of this distracted mind, this painful knee, this social phobia, you know, or whatever else might be what you want to get rid of. But hopefully in the context of the retreat, we could keep substituting in another most important thing. The, you know, and you just have to language it in a way that's relevant to you, but something like the unconditional release of this. And you can call this the heart or the mind if you want, or you can just call it this. The unconditional release, the unshakable release. You can call it supreme safety, you know, or uh, fearlessness. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism they call it the deathless. As a way, it's just a provocative way of like saying fearlessness. Because the deathless sort of is going right at that archetypal fear of mortality. So beyond the fear of death is that unshakable release, another expression of that unshakable release. The heart that is uh, peaceful, open, intimate, responsive, even with things as they are, even with birth and death, even with uncertainty, vulnerability. So there's really, as a theme, you know, for this retreat, we'll all be, some of you have been practicing for years, so, you know, we'll just slide into this great form that people have been practicing in, rich people, poor people, I mean, across the spectrum. People have been using some form like this for a long, long time. Cultivating mindfulness, we say. Which, of course, means cultivating a friendly heart, because there's no way to be mindful without a friendly heart. Now, as a particular theme, then, in this community of mindfulness that we were in the process of constructing together and maintaining together for this weekend, then as a theme, we're remembering the most important thing, like it should be something that's alive as we're doing our day, sitting, walking, doing our daily life activities here on retreat, including the humility, I don't remember what the most, I have no clue what the most important thing is, but then hanging out in that space of knowing that you don't know what is important. Because then you could see, like, not trying to figure out what's most important, but just see, like, according to the views in this mind and according to the activities of this mind and body, what most important thing is it operating under? Like rushing to get your walking lane before somebody else gets it. You go, oh, so like, so it seems like getting my space, protecting my space, maybe is the most important thing. Or maybe it's more subtle than just having that's my walking space. Maybe it's more of a 
like creating some certainty in a world where, you know, that's a little tenuous. Like, I can count on that space being available for me to walk in. Or I can count on the fact that Marta and Sharon got enough green tea to last the whole retreat. Otherwise, yeah, I don't know if there's more green tea there. Maybe I'll just take enough so I'll have enough for all three days because <laughs> it's really important. That's the most important thing. <laughs> but if we can somehow... And this, this is an insight. It's not easy. I don't, I don't want to make this out to be something easy. But if we can somehow recall or intuit the possibility of release, the heart's release, the heart-mind-body's release, the experience of ease, call that love if you want, unconditional love, unconditional friendliness, If we can envision that, remember that, intuit it, aspire to it, then, and then sustain that interest, then we'll probably have a a really interesting three days. Because the hardest thing is remembering the most important thing. And I'll give you some... Um, instruction based on all of my mistakes, you know, faking it doesn't work. Like telling yourself that the most important thing is X because you've seen the answer. You know, you've snuck to the teacher's desk and you look, oh yeah, release. That's the most important thing. And so you just keep telling yourself kind of reflexively, yeah, I aspire towards relief. Without without dredging up your own actual intuition, your own actual experience of release. So to some degree, however faint or however much you might might mistrust your own intuitive sense of release, of freedom, but that's, you got to make it real. It isn't enough to sort of repeat the words because you know it has something to do with freedom or love or release or wisdom or enlightenment or... Nibbana or whatever word you might use because you see the remembering the most important thing when we remember something anything like kindness or equanimity or calm or forgiveness we can't if it's an actual remembering then in the remembering is the real thing even if we have a lot of memory image or language in the remembering, that's okay. But the fact is, you'll see that when I bring up freedom, like a word like freedom or ease, then it, whatever this heart knows about it, including the present moment reality of ease, comes to mind. Language has power or It's not even so much language. What really has power is intention. So intention is a little bit like aiming the heart. Or that's not quite right. It's it's more about like uh, 
opening up or framing or noticing. So when I use a word like equanimity or calm or kindness or ease or freedom, then it it sort of uh, helps to frame or clarify that reality that's here and now. So in remembering, like sustaining the memory of the most important thing, it's like keeping the eye on the ball. If we want to be peaceful, or do when we, if we want to be free, if we want to realize unconditional release, then this is the moment when it has to be practiced. We have to practice sensing or intuiting or remembering or seeing, feeling it here and now. Because, I don't know about you, but the aspiration, my aspiration is that's where I, I want to realize freedom here and now. And if you catch yourself thinking about realizing it in the future, that's a really good time for a sense of humor to arise, like how absurd that is. Why aspire to realize this in the future when we could aspire to realize it here and now? Like ask yourself the question, honey, why not now? Why not aspire to ease here and now? And the reason, if we're honest, almost always, the reason is, why this isn't a suitable time. I'm not wise enough, I'm not good enough, or this moment ain't good enough. Like the mind creates its own barrier, and then it believes it. It it manufactures or constructs a sense of limitation, and then it lives inside of that experience of limitation. So really, this is why this statement is such a potent statement. The the most important thing is remembering the most important thing. Because we're always putting off, always thinking it's out there. Always wanting to be sort of this methodical spiritual aspirant, hardworking, you know, willing to do the, willing to climb the mountain, willing to trudge along, And we become identified with that being, carrying the heavy pack, slogging through the marsh with the bugs. I'm an unenlightened being who really wants to be enlightened. You know, and all those other people indulging in their lives, they're really screwed. I'm the one on the noble path. And we can get really self-righteous, especially, you know, you know what really fuels self, self-righteousness is hurting. You know, when you're hurting, it's like that's how we distract ourselves from our own pain is we get self-righteous. Well, this is, you know, I'm hurting because I'm doing the right thing. Instead, you know, if we notice we're hurting, then that's a really good time to wonder uh, about this aspiration for freedom. Like, I wonder what freedom looks like 
in this experience of being a sleepy human being. Like often the first day of retreat, people feel really sleepy at different times. Sluggish, mind, body gets heavy. And so then the question is, well, I can't be free now. I have to wait till all this clears up. Maybe, hopefully, by Sunday, I'll be more balanced. You know, my, I'll have my energy back or something. But no, the more relevant thing is, you know, the most important thing is like, well, what is freedom or ease or forgiveness or whatever? What does that look like when the body mind is like this, like styrofoam? You just feel like you're packed in styrofoam because that's sometimes how it is. I, I certainly it's that way with me sometimes. You feel dead to the world. So, is there any freedom there, or do you have to wait until that goes away? And why not have the aspiration to be completely free in that experience, not burdened by that experience, not weighed down? What a wonderful exploration that would be. Or maybe some something triggers a lot of shame, like you pass gas. You know, one of the things you'll notice at the in the dining room when everyone's there, it's kind of close quarters. There's just enough seats for everybody, and you know. We have a lot of beans on the streets. It's not easy to have gluten, dairy-free, meat-free dishes. So, and um, so you might pass some gas, or or spill, um, or you know, bring a fork of food to your mouth and miss. <laughs> and there you are with people all around you. You know, sensitive human beings, very sensitive because they've been cultivating mindfulness. They, and they see exactly what's going on, and they feel, intuitively feel your shame, which just amplifies the whole thing, pretending that they're not seeing anything because we've been told not to look. And So can, you're laughing because some of you really know how <laughs> potent these moments can be, you know, in community like this. You can... And it's great it, that amplification actually is really useful because it it makes the dukkha, the uncomfortableness of our patterns, it just makes it so much more clear. In our busy days, um, where we have more distractions, we can miss how heavy and tight uh, just being a social being can be a lot of the time. So the the wonderful thing then in those difficult moments is just to wonder, like, does this most important thing relate? Like this aspiration for ease, for peace, for the full, unconditional release of the heart, does it make sense here and now? And just exploring that. Like, it's like our whole life, you could think, you know, it's nice to paint a, a beautiful picture. Like our whole life is about remembering the most important thing and then in that amazing dynamic of remembering the most important thing and, of course, the most important thing immediately involves the way it is now because the most important thing is being free with the way it is now. So it's not any kind of separation because the aspiration itself is about being free with the way it is, this body, mind, this circumstance, this reality here and now. So you see, it just creates this opportunity for learning, for what we call insight. Because 
that aspiration, remembering the most important thing, really supports mindfulness. It just makes mindfulness the natural response, not even so much that I'm trying to be mindful, but in remembering the most important thing, the heart, the mind just shows up because it's remembering the possibility of being at ease with the way it is right here and now. Free, not needing the conditions to be other than they are. So I'll leave it here and I'll pick up this theme Friday night and Saturday night. We'll have small groups tomorrow and Saturday. I'll just divide this group into three. For those of you on your bio sheets uh, who are relatively new to retreat practice or at least the style of retreat practice, I'll put you in the first group. Otherwise, I'll just divide the groups randomly. Um, And so your own reflections and how you're working with remembering the most important thing (coughs) that you might bring up in the small groups might be really useful for us to hear from each other about that and what gets in the way and how easy it is to be forgetful and to think other things are important. Um, Even though, in a sense, with some reflection, we realize they're not, but just like a gravitational pull, we just keep going back to things that ultimately aren't important, but there we are again, the mind, obsessing, worrying, um, digging into things that ultimately aren't important. One of the things, one of the really beautiful things, and you might just take out your sheet on refuges and precepts, Every morning at 6.15, we'll chant the three refuges. But we'll do it really slowly. Like those of you who are in the Buddhist studies class will sing the three refuges, just the Pali, really slowly. But it's a tradition. And no matter really what culture, what language was spoken, um, in this tradition at least, people would chant the refuges and precepts in Pali, this language spoken around the time of the Buddha. And it's a nice way, doing it this way, it's a nice way to feel part of a very wide and deep stream in human culture. Of people who were inspired by these teachings, undertook the practice, gained some benefits, shared what they learned so that Generation by generation, it lands here in this little place in the middle of the woods by a big lake this time. And so we're using that thought of being part of something and being able to tap into this stream because it can really support faith and confidence and resolve So you'll see there's a particular formula. We acknowledge, pay homage to our teacher, the Buddha. So we consider this person who lived 2,500 years ago to be a teacher, a human being who had a confused mind like we do, practiced well, realized without having a teacher. So we have the advantage of having the Buddha's articulation of what happened to him, what he came to understand, from observing his own mind. So first we acknowledge 
the Buddha with that opening statement. We do that three times. And then we just repeat, uh, I take refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. So Buddha isn't this historic person, although the statue or your thought of this guy 2,500 years ago can represent, you know, and it can be a symbol of this quality of wakefulness, the mind free from grasping. So you can think of it as a mind or a heart like a mirror that simply reflects clearly the way it is, simply knows clearly the way it is. So when we say, I take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in that uh, purity of knowing. And what does the purity of knowing know? It knows Dhamma. That's the second refuge. We take refuge in Dhamma, which is what is being known. So there's knowing. We take refuge in knowing. We take refuge in what is being known. No matter what it is, the pretty, the ugly, everything in between, the boring. Because, in a sense, Dhamma is our teacher, too. The Buddha is our teacher. This empty, pure, stainless knowing is our teacher, our refuge. And the way it is, is our teacher. It teaches us to, you know, unconditionally accept, because it's the way it is. It's already this way. Why get tight? It doesn't make it different. It just adds a layer of tightness. So we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the way it is, and we take refuge in Sangha. We take refuge in all of the folks, past and present and future, who at least in moments are Buddha-knowing Dhamma. That's what we mean by an enlightened or liberated human being. Whenever you're Buddha knowing Dhamma, that pure, empty, stainless mind is just connecting, opening to the way it is, then you're Sangha. Meaning, because your response, your way of being in that moment is going to be really appropriate and skillful and inspiring to those around you. There's no self-centeredness there, no delusion there. And so you'll be an inspiration and we say, so glad to be around Sangha. You know, I'm so glad to have somebody manifesting some integrity or some clarity or some skillfulness in this moment to support my life. And ideally, you know, we'd have friends who are periodically Sangha. Probably we don't have friends that are always Sangha, right? But if you have enough friends, then maybe every once in a while there's always somebody who's close to being Sangha or is Sangha. And, you know... You can open your eyes sometimes in the sit. You'll look around and, you know, some people will be suffering human beings and some people will be sangha. You know, people who are suffering but not afraid of it, not identified with it. So liberated, not taking it personally. So that's what we mean by sangha. The sort of when somebody is engaging, responding to life free of great anger and delusion. So we think about the Buddha as an example of Sangha. Or anybody who's fully awake, they're always Sangha. That's what we mean by being fully awake or fully enlightened. They're always acting free from greed, anger, and delusion. So we take those three refuges. Then we review the precepts. And this really creates the safe container for us. 
We're taking refuge, or I'm sorry, we're undertaking the training to refrain from harming, from taking things that aren't ours, from all sexual activity on retreat. So it's different than in daily life when we take, uh, we undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct, sexual activity that causes ourselves or others harm. But while we're on retreat, we just, um, of course, we're going to remain sexual beings because that's just how it is, but we're just not acting it out in a public way at all through flirting or even, you know, within our own mental activity because uh, it just creates a lot more safety to put that aside for periods of time. And it's just really useful to learn how to let the energy move without having to express it out into in the world. It's a really great skill because clearly some of the times it's not appropriate to be acting it out. And it's nice to have that skill, not to have to act on sexual impulses whenever they arise. So the retreat container is really a wonderful time to learn that skill. We undertake the training to refrain from incorrect speech. In We won't be reading what's in parentheses, but you can see lying, slander, harsh words, idle words. That's what we mean. That's what the Buddha means by incorrect speech. Sometimes that gets translated as false speech. And I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs which lead to carelessness. So clearly, you know, in order to remember the most important thing, we want a mind that is really a wonderful instrument. So we don't want to dull the spine in any way to any kind of consumption. Too much caffeine would be a violation of this training. Right? You know, but... For some of you who, who drink a lot of caffeine every day, to all of a sudden cut yourself off would be its own kind of intoxication, right? Intoxicated with the idea, I can't drink caffeine, and you'll be intoxicated with, you know, the mind detoxing, <laughs> which will make, get in the way of clarity. So how can you maintain your clarity? That's the important thing for the fifth. Then I added the sixth, seventh, and eighth precept that a lot of people work with. And whenever, you, like for example, if you had a, you'd ever go practice at a monastery, you would necessarily, a Theravada monastery, you'd necessarily take on these other three pre, uh, precepts, which are about renunciation. So I'll just review them quickly. And then I wrote a little bit underneath to kind of give you a little bit more background. I undertake the training to refrain from eating at the wrong times. So this is just pointing to the fact that us humans, we do two things. We eat in order to take to sort of maintain the health of the body. And to be honest, a lot of our eating is entertainment. So this is really basically saying any way that that can work for you, see if you can tease out eating as entertainment. Of course, do whatever works to make to support the health of your body and mind. But try not, see if, see if you can tease out that the ways, you know, eating a little bit more because it's fun, because it tastes good, more than you actually need to feel good in your body, to have clarity in your mind. And then the seventh is undertaking the training to refrain from indulging in entertainments and adornments. The actual translation is dancing, singing, music, going to see entertainments, wearing garlands, using perfumes and beautifying the body with cosmetics. So it's, it's basically this commitment 
for this period of time, not forever, but for this period of time, to simplify, not to clutter or complicate our lives with entertainments or adornments. Not that they're bad, but this particular training, we use the activity of simplification to support it. And then the last, I undertake the training to refrain from indulging in sleep. It's really the same as the food one, where we're just on the lookout of and how we use sleep for entertainment and how we use sleep to avoid feeling what we feel, avoid seeing what we see. It's like, I've seen enough, I just want out. You know, and so it's like, you know, for someone like me who's done a lot of formal uh, retreat practice, one of the very interesting things is um, the very strong desire for sleep, but there's like no sleepiness in the mind. But I'd really like th- that sort of primitive, like I'd really like to check out. But after a while on a longer retreat, it's like the mindfulness gets really strong and it just doesn't know how to shut down. And you don't need that much sleep at night. You know, really, I'm not kidding, four hours is often more than the mind wants, body wants. And, uh, and it's like the mind, this part, it's called the desire for non-becoming, this craving to just get me out of here, gets strong, but there's no escape because we're not like overeating and sleep just doesn't, act can't be used in that way anymore because the mind just, there's just too much energy in the mind to indulge in sleep. Now, this could definitely happen on this retreat because it takes a while for that much energy to build in the mind. So you could sleep away the retreat. Some of you could. So that's, for those of you who could do that, you know, that that's an avenue that your mind has cultivated, learning how to escape through sleep, then don't use it. If you're sleep deprived, you might need a couple naps tomorrow. You know, not long ones, 20 minutes after lunch, maybe a little nap another time. That's okay if you're sleep deprived. But if it's just that you don't like your experience, you just want out, then just stay with it. Maybe go outside, but stay familiar with that feeling and then try to maintain that, well, what's the most important thing? Oh yeah, being at ease with the way it is. Being free with the way it is. Is there any freedom with this yucky feeling? So just kind of sustain that contemplation, that practice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.